Welcome, everybody, to episode 59 of Re-Educating Dad, the cross-generational talk show, uh, where we talk about different topics from our different places on the age spectrum. Uh, I'm joined, as usual, today by my co-host, Tony, Little Tone. How are you, Little Tone? I'm okay, thank you. How are you? Very well, too, thank you. Very well. We've had a bit of a gap, haven't we? Yeah, it's been chaos in little tone world. <laughs> okay, tell us about your chaos. Oh, well... And I'll I tell you about mine my... after. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I uh, left my job of five years last week and joined a new team. There was no gap in between. So I left Green Door Store on Wednesday and I started working at Music Venue Trust full-time on Thursday and there just was no respite in between. And I went straight into... my new role is like campaign so it was straight into campaign world and it's exciting but it's full on (laughs) well you are a campaigner what are you campaigning for um i so i've just launched a campaign to get some really big artists into music venues into small music venues so we've got people like tom jones and mahalia fontaine's dc frank turner all playing really small venues and that's been done with national lottery money Oh, you've got some golden oldies there, like Tom Jones. So you're no doubt... Yeah, well, so do I. No doubt your experience on this cross-generational show will stand you in good stead because you'll know how to talk to Tom. (laughs) He's a different generation to you, Dad. He's in his 80s. Oh, no, he is. Yes, yes. But this will help you, believe me. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> what how's what's the chaos in your world been well the the chaos in my world is in in one week i've had one wedding and a funeral oh and it started with a wedding and it had a funeral in the middle and it ended with a wedding because the wedding yeah, it, the weddings. wedding is an indian wedding a hindu wedding and they go on for a long time and i must say it's one of the most joyous experiences that i've had in my life um it's very much a cross-cultural event because what's nice about it apart from all the color and the brilliant sort of rituals rituals and music and dancing that they have um probably not supposed to say that we dance uh but um it's just great the way they revere respect honor recognize their elders so you know it, none of this you know at a western wedding people get can get kind of very choosy about who from the family they invite and you know oh we'd rather have our friends there and stuff like not that not me not me i know I you don't everyone. yours yours was extremely <laughs> your wedding was extremely inclusive but a lot of western weddings tend to be quite choosy and selective about mm. who they invite but here the in in an indian wedding the the, the certainly the sense i got was that it would be it would be unthinkable not to invite all the family members and they are all very involved in the rituals that go on and i loved that i thought that was fantastic uh i can't there isn't time here to go into and that isn't the purpose of this episode to go into it but it i did that was amazing unfortunately in the middle i we had to break away and go up north uh to attend the funeral of a um cousin um, who died very suddenly. And I think it's, you know, it, it's one of those things, one of those punctuation points in life 
where you got you kind of stop and think and pause and re- recognize that we have very little time on this earth and that time can be curtailed at any moment this this um, cousin of mine um, a woman of 62 years old had retired and was looking forward to you know really enjoying her retirement and she'd you know she'd planned it that way had planned a life that way this was the beginning of her retirement she planned to spend it a lot with her dad who's in his 90s um, my uncle um, and she was out uh, in a coffee shop with a friend and she suddenly got a headache and she said, wow, this is a bad headache. I think I'd better go home this afternoon and sleep it off. Then she, as I understand it, she started slurring her words and it was obvious to the person with her that she was in serious trouble. So the ambulance was called and long story short, you know, she, she passed away uh, within a matter of, I, I guess, hours uh, from a massive brain hemorrhage at the base of the skull. Uh, and apparently this is something that these things actually happen more than you might think. And uh, they can happen to anybody. There was, no, there was no previous warnings of any kind. So that was obviously a very sad family event. Um, and uh, she wasn't a religious person, so we, we didn't have a service as such. It was literally straight to the graveyard, into the ground and... But, you know, it was a chance for the family to get, get all, family all to come together and to, you know, celebrate her life. I like the way that people nowadays talk about celebrating the life and not having a lot of, you know, sort of some somber sort of religious rituals going on. But, uh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's been my, that's been largely responsible for, on my side anyway for the, the gap in, the, the, the one-week gap in our episodes. But we're back. That's miserable. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was yeah. a bit of joy in there, and there was a bit of misery. Um, I find but- that story quite triggering because I suffer really badly with migraines. In fact, I went to A and E yesterday, no day before yesterday, because I had an intense migraine in an unusual place, and I think I felt quite affected by that story the first time you told me it. Yes, and I was yeah. like, "Oh my god, oh my god, is this it?" <laughs> Well, it's bound to have that effect. I mean, you know, because we are, we're biological systems and things can go wrong. But, but I think that the thing, the takeaway from it is, look, you know, enjoy the precious now. The, the now is all that matters. Let's be kind to each other. Let's love one another. Let's, you know, make the best of the time that we have on this earth. Whereas it seems to me a lot of people you know, spend so much time focusing on misery and making other people miserable. Um, and really, that shouldn't be what life is all about. Here endeth the lesson. Now, <laughs> moving on. We were going to talk about July the 19th, Freedom Day. It has now been, it's pretty much been announced that there isn't any retreat from this. It's irreversible, in Boris's words. Uh, we are going to end all restrictions on the 19th of July. What do you think? oh my god i don't know i am terrified i think the fact that they were like they said in the announcement more people are going to get sick and more people are going to die but we're going to end all restrictions i was a bit kind of like what this doesn't make sense i mean part of me 
it's difficult because part of me wants to celebrate that music venues will be able to open and I'll be able to do things again and see people. And the other part of me is terrified of getting sick, sick again. And, um, you know, and the NHS being overwhelmed again and not having any supplies. Like it's a very mixed bag of feelings for me. How about you? Well, um, it's a mixed bag for me, but also, but I think that, you know, the, the success of the vaccine program has been really um, a huge credit to our country, I think. Um, and it does, it does look clear from the data that if you are double vaxxed, you have a very a vanishingly small chance, not of getting infected again, I mean, although it is a very small chance of getting reinfected, but but it certainly is a very small chance, a vanishingly small chance of being hospitalized. So 40% of the people that were hospitalized were people that had been double vaxxed. Yeah, well... I mean, I'm not sure what to do, what what to say about that. I don't. I haven't seen that piece of data. Uh, that was in the announcement. It was in the announcement that they gave out. I, I saw Andrew. I saw the Andrew Marr pro, the last version of the Andrew Marr program, where you know there was a eminent one of the eminent scientists being interviewed, and in fact, Andrew. No, actually, it wasn't the last one. I think it was the one before last. Andrew Marr himself was challenging the scientist because he himself has been double vaxxed, and he said to the scientist you know, I've been double vaxxed, I got it again, and it wasn't pleasant. Mm. And the scientist said, yeah, that can happen. But the fact is, you weren't hospitalized. And very, very few people who have been double vaxxed, very, very few people go on to be hospitalized. So I, th I think that this, and he, he said, you know, that this is a sensible decision. What we're doing is a sensible decision because we can't live our lives in a bloody glass bubble, can we? I mean, we can't. I mean, we, we've, we have to live our lives. And life involves risk. You take a risk every time you get in a car. You take a risk every time you go on a plane. You could take a risk every this time you cross the road. This Pardon? risk is quite different because the risk has very unpredictable results because p healthy people have died from having COVID. Well, healthy so, people die in car accidents and plane yeah, accidents. Yeah, but, but the risk is higher than get, you know being in a car crash or in an airplane. I don't think it is. Know. I don't think well, it, it has is. Been at, at its peak, it has been. At its peak, yes. That's what I mean by the, the important thing is the vax, the vaccinations, because the vaccinations... Third, the third now. Yes, we are in a third wave, and there are going to inevitably be big, big number of infections because we are opening up, um, and there are going to be more hospitalizations, and there are going to be more deaths. I mean, there isn't any doubt about that, and I, you know, sincerely hope that none of us is one of those. But you know, no, but I think that it's different because. Sorry to interrupt you. I, I think it's different for you because you've. Um, you've built quite a secure way to continue working and to continue living and to continue having a good time. But the fact is, is that a lot of young people that are, that are considered to be the ones that are going to reopen the economy and actually have been, you know, the economy has been riding on the back of these young people. They're the ones that are expected to take all of the responsibility into, because there's, there's no, 
government enforcement anymore. They're the ones that have to, if you get, if they get the self-isolation, it's, they have to decide whether they want to self-isolate or not. They, the, we have to decide whether we want to wear masks or not. I'm not calling myself a young person, but you know, um, there's no, there's no support in place anymore. So the fact is, I'll just take a, for instance, with my job, I'm supposed to commute into work once a week. And if the world was normal at the moment, I'd be getting a train into Hackney. And the fact is, is that because the infection's on the rise and because I'm vulnerable, I'm choosing to drive, which is much more expensive for me. It's much longer. And I'm still putting myself at risk because I have to stop at a petrol station. I have to, you know, then go into an office. I have to go and get lunch or whatever. And there's no support in place for people to, cho- to make the, I think, a responsible decision to stay at home. Do you know what I mean? Well, I do, but I don't, I don't see, I do, I do see what you mean, but I I don't think that there's any alternative, is there? Well, I'm just saying that if the, if the government had said, we still think that it makes sense for people to work from home. So in where, you know, where possible, we're telling employers that their employees should work from home, but they're not doing that anymore. They're saying that employers should make the decision themselves. And employers are just expecting people to come back in again. And the risk for, of me getting infected versus someone else is a lot higher. I don't know. It's, I, I just find it really, I find it all really troubling. And, and I, I find it very strange, the whole thing with the football. I'm sure we're going to talk about the football, but it's so strange how we are going into this third wave and yet we're seeing the government allow these mass events to go on and we're still supposed to have restrictions right now and yet we're all over the internet you're seeing videos of people shouting screaming hugging each other getting into fights um you know spitting at danish people stuff like that and and it's it's like how has there been so much enforcement on culture and yet when it comes to something like sport it's been completely disregarded well, I think probably that the answer to that is because people involved in culture are nicer people <laughs> on the whole. Um, I mean, and I mean that, I mean that in the sense that, well, let's talk a little bit about the football because we, you and I talked a little bit about that yesterday when we were talking about doing this show today. Um, you mentioned an event that uh, your husband Tom was going to with his dad um, I think you was that in Hastings or Brighton? No, it was on the pier. Shall, shall I explain? So, um, yeah, so uh, yeah, they were attending a, a, an open air football viewing at, on the pier. Um, our pier in Hastings has basically basically nothing on it. It's not like Brighton Pier at all, and it's just got benches and a huge screen. So obviously, someone's brought brought in the benches and the huge screen. Normally, you would just like look at the sea. Um, and uh, so they went down to the first football match, which was a 18 plus event. And after winning that event, they apparently it was just absolute chaos. I mean, these young people were just throwing things off the side of the pier, like barriers, chairs, you know, screaming, jumping up, grabbing each other, like like in a happy way. There was no like violence or anything like that. But they were not. They were not. Uh, considerate or controllable because someone over the microphone was basically saying please can you sit down don't spoil it for everyone we want to be able to do this again 
And within sort of 10 minutes, this woman came on and was like, sit the F down. What's wrong with you? Or whatever, you know, tone changed completely. But so for the next peer match, they, they decided last minute to make it 25 plus. And they called up all the people and said, you know, do you have any 18 year olds coming? If you have 18 year olds, well, we're going to turn them away. So if that's you, we're going to give you a refund now. Um, these tables are quite expensive, by the way. I think it's a table of six for like a couple hundred pounds. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's expensive. But, that, but that's what I'm just pausing there for a moment. That's what I mean by nicer people. Uh, you, you, so that doesn't happen at Wimbledon. <laughs> um, you know, unfortunately, football um, d just draws people who I'm, I'm not sure if age is particularly the thing, but it, it draws people who can be violent and uncouth uh, and basically beastly to each other and uh, when you told me about the banning of people under the age of 25 um i mentioned oh there's discrimination in action and and you know discrimination well, i haven't told people what happened yet i haven't said what happened. okay what go happened. ahead yeah go ahead yeah sorry i should very, have, i was got ahead of myself go ahead yeah, just very briefly, um, at the second event that was 25 plus, it was very civilized, no issues, everyone was respectful. Obviously, they, England won again, but it was a very different event. Um, and we were both talking about the fact that it's considered discrimination and profiling, but it was positive. It actually ended up having, it meant the event, the next event could go on. And um, yeah, it's quite difficult because it kind of, in a way, is villainizing all eighteen-year-olds, but and it's also just—it's also sorry to interrupt. It's also justifying discrimination because discrimination can sometimes be needed. Uh, for, you know, an, an obvious example is if you're when you're in, getting car insurance, when you're under the age of twenty-five, you really get penalised with the insurance premium, don't you? That is I don't know. I passed at twenty-five. <laughs> oh, okay, well then you don't know. It's like yeah. you know when you're sort of you can take your driving test and pass at seventeen, can't you? And therefore drive. It's ruinously expensive. You know, it's really, really expensive. And it, you know, unless you got a really cheap car, and even then, it's really, really expensive to be allowed on the road. And that is a form of discrimination. It's a form of price discrimination. Mm. Um. So I suppose Wimbledon, as I mentioned, the tennis event deploys price discrimination. No, it deploys more than that, but it certainly deploys price discrimination because you have to spend so much money in order to buy a ticket there. But you tend to get people who, you know, are pretty well healed going there. Um, and, and, and that obviously has a knock-on effect on behavior. So, you know... This, as, as, as we said yesterday when we were discussing this, dis discrimination is a very complex subject. You know, it's, it's not as straightforward as people might think. You know, you think about the police and stop and search and how they do that. Well, they, the, the, they act in the way that they do because there are sound experiential reasons for acting in that way. Just as this was an experiential, it, this, was an exper this was an experiential um, reason that the people on the, who were managing the Hastings Pier event that you describe, their experience led them to say, hey, you know, let's try this. And it worked. And that ended up in being a great result for the people who were there who did want to behave themselves. Now, go ahead. You want to. That's, that's, that's definitely different because that's, 
we're talking about a chemical thing like a biological chemical thing with younger people you know they're going through puberty all their hormones are rushing around you know they they are have less experience you know well, they're just um, ignorant thugs no that's not that is not it and i'm sorry we it's very hard to compare football to tennis because tennis is a middle class sport you know it's a very wealth there's a lot of wealth in that sport and the people that go like you said it's almost like there's a there's a price tag discrimination yeah there is price discrimination yeah football is a working class sport even though the players get paid an astronomical amount i don't like football because of perpetuating lad culture and that's what i think it does i think that some some of the fans not all fans i think that that actually football has a very mixed uh, audience but some of the fans are are volatile and unpredictable and they make me feel unsafe so that's why I don't like football. I don't like the the way that the professionals act in their personal lives, you know, uh, that they get kind of like glorified for cheating and all of this nasty stuff like gambling and it's so much. There's so much to say about that, but also just the way, it, yeah, it like kind of perpetuates this lad culture. But I don't think you can compare an age restriction against a uh, against racism with the police like racial profiling i think it's very different especially when you have to look at the history but um i know what i was like as an 18 year old you know i know how i acted and i used to go out and go drinking and and how i am now or how i was at 25 there's a huge difference you you calm down you know who you are you know you've got a better understanding of other people and how to behave in public so I don't think I don't think it's thugs. I just think it's young, particularly young boys. Just well, I think it's all. I think it's um, all of the. I think it's all of the above. Since this is a cross generational show, let me tell you a cross generational story of my own. Um, when I was a small boy, um, my grandfather used to go. He wanted to take me to um, a football match in Stoke on Trent. Um, when I was up visiting them, they lived in Newcastle under Lyme. And uh, he took me to this football match, and I think it's probably the only football match I've ever attended in my life. And you'll understand maybe the reason for that when I tell you the rest of the story. Uh, first of all, I remember, even though I was quite a small lad, um, as we got closer to the football ground, I just remember everything becoming more and more seedy and just rather horrid you know i mean barbed wire and you know just it was just a, in an ugly part of town and so on but that isn't really that isn't really material very material to what i'm going to tell you but the my abiding memory of that event during the football match is one fan getting a bottle breaking it and pushing the jagged end into another fan's face with, oh the with the result, of course, of just, I, I can see it now, again, even though I was very small, I can see it now, you know, the blood sort of spurting out of this young fan's face. And I, you know, immediately just felt that this is, this is not a place I ever want to go again. Yeah, I mean, I have, I have similar experiences to that. I was in, um, I, I want to say it was like 2000, 
two or three when we, whenever it was that we were doing the World Cup in the early 2000s. And I was in a big pub in Staines with some friends and it was so packed that we were sitting on the floor to watch the match. Mm. And, um, and England lost and I saw a man bottle a woman over the head. So not quite as bad as what you said, but it frightened me. And mm. the thing is, is that I've, you know, I've worked in bars and stuff like that. And I've been on the service end of it as well when you're, you know, working when there's a match going on. And I just think that some of these some of these audience members don't know how to how to um, deal with their joy or their disappointment when they lose or win a match because they can fight when they win or they can fight when they lose. Or they can fight for the sake of fighting. Yeah, but I just, um, it just, the whole thing just frightens me. I just think these people are unpredictable. Um, and, you know, like my father-in-law has, is so in love with football, so in love with football. He, he was nearly a professional footballer when he was younger. And then I think he had an injury. Um, he damaged his ligaments and he, he keeps saying to my husband, um, Tom, that hopefully I'll get into it if the, the further England progress and Tom's, Tom keeps saying to him, she won't, she really won't. And it's true. I just, I, I don't enjoy it. I can't enjoy it. I did used to like going to watch the rugby, but it's a very different crowd. Very yes, that, that, that's, that is actually very true. It is a very different crowd. Um, you, asked me, did, you asked me, did I watch the football? Uh, no, I did not watch the football. The, the last football match that I really enjoyed, again, was when I was a small boy of 10. Um, and that was when the, our country won the World Cup back in 1966. 66. Now, I remember football. I used to play it uh, a lot. And I remember really enjoying and being excited by football. But after that match, my interest in it really waned. And I, and I pinpoint that. I put that down to the game changing. And I think the game, I think I'm right in saying this from, from, from my memory, the game changed because Germany started to play in a different way. And it, it was a way that I it really bored me to tears. And from what I have, can see, and I did tune into a bit of the match last night, from what I can see, that way of playing has continued right till now. And that is, the ball just gets passed around backwards and forwards for 95% of the match. Whereas, and the actual exciting bits when the ball, when, the, when, you know, there's an actual attack on one goal or the other, those bits are sort of like fleeting moments. Um, and I find the, you know, the majority of the play just so dull to watch. And I, therefore, I've never been able to go back to, to watching it. I, th I think it was a really horrible step when this very defensive form of play when you just keep kicking the ball backwards and forwards to each other keeping it away from the other side but not actually doing anything meaningful contrast with, with that with what's been going on at Wimbledon every point is like really exciting I mean it's great stuff um, you know what, a comparable sport to something that could be seen as working class people as well but it's super fast paced and exciting is basketball, especially basketball in the States. It is so exciting and so fast paced. And 
the way that players move and they're really innovative with the way that they, you know, can get from one side to the other. Like I, I remember, I can't remember what the, what the documentary on Netflix is called, but it's, it's about um, Michael Jordan and his team when they were mm. like in their prime. And it is so good. Mm. It made me really excited about basketball. Um, the other thing I was going to say about the discrimination thing is, is everyone keeps saying on the news at the mo- moment, oh, you know, England hasn't been in, in, in the final of the World Cup for 50 years. For 50 years this is the biggest thing ever. And it's like, that's not true. We were in the final in 2009, but that was with the women's team. Oh, yes. And actually, we have a fantastic uh, female football team for England. Really good players. And, and, if you no- and if you notice, the way they play is much more interesting. <laughs> Because we move in a magical way. Well, because it's, it's more like the way football used to be played. You know, it's, it's, it's exciting and engaging. It, whereas this business of just passing the ball around backwards and forwards uh, is just is so dull, you know? And the fake, and the fake um, I'm hurt. Oh, or the acting, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the acting. And then two seconds later, they're up and they're feeling fine. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, the the... the pay gap between what male footballers earn and what women footballers earn is just so bad. Because tennis cured that, didn't it? Or at least Wimbledon certainly did. And I think it's been cured across the board. Because the female, again, the female tennis players are way more exciting to watch. Mm. (laughs) Come on, the Williams sisters are (laughs) scary. They are. I'm I'm afraid that they are in the descendancy now. Um, that's yeah, in there, you that's know. You, more did you hear that Roger Federer was was knocked out in you know in pretty spectacular way yesterday? No, I didn't. He lost in straight sets, and he and his final set that he lost, which may well be the last set he ever plays on centre court at Wimbledon, he lost six love. Oh my god! Oh my god! That's bad. I bet he's very it's, disappointed. It's age. You know he's he's nearly forty, and he's, he's had played, a good run though. He has he's had, <laughs> he's been the best player. You know the beautiful yeah. player to watch, beautiful player to watch. But he's now he's now forty, nearly, and he has had knee surgery. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and Andy Andy. So this is um, you know he's he's experiencing the cross generational journey. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's age. Forty even old. <laughs> time doesn't wait for anyone, and he doesn't respect yeah. any athlete. You know, you, your time will come. Anyway, and we also come to when that when that weakness happens, it's very little you can do when you're in a professional it, sports it's, career. It's it was really sad to watch. You know, really sad, and it, it you know. I've seen these players. I mean, I remember him when he was, you know, when he first won at Wimbledon. I remember it very vividly and when he came into the game. And, and that was after people that I'd watched and revered, like John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg and, you know, people like that. So, I've, you know, you see Wimbledon is actually a great sort of uh, cross-generational spectrum that you could look back on and see, you know, these... these oh, I mean, look at Boris Becker. Boris Becker, I remember him 19 years old. Uh, diving across the court, you know, fantastic player. Now he looks like, you know, uh, Mr. Blowfield uh, fell to, you know, sort of from James Bond villain, (laughs) a James Bond villain, you know, the poor guy. I mean, he's, but it's age. I mean, it's the same with me and everybody else, you know. However, we've come to the end of our time. Uh, That was very interesting talk. I enjoyed it very much. 
Um, I hope I'll, you, dear listener, that you enjoyed it too. And do let us have, as always, your feedback. Uh, you know, we regard these shows as like a, you know, a, a family chat around the dining table with people, you know, family members of different uh, generations giving their perspectives from where they sit um, on the age spectrum. And uh, I think that way we you know, with tolerance, we, we, even though we have very different views because of our different ages, um, we can respect one another's points of view and perhaps get closer to one another's points of view and, or at least understand them if nothing else. So we'd love to have your feedback. We get great feedback um, on this show. Go to our Facebook page, give us your feedback. You can do it privately if you want to. A lot of people choose to do that, or you can do it publicly by commenting when you see this episode. Um, get published, which will be sometime tomorrow. So um, for now, um, I thank my co-host, Little Tone, and uh, say goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Bye.